You're listening to Scars We Share. I'm your host, Kayleen. For this episode, I got to talk with Devin. While she is a heterosexual woman, she was raised by lesbians in Salt Lake County. As a trigger warning, we do discuss emotional abuse in this episode. Hi, thank you. Um, I am 21. I identify as she, her, with um, cisgender, uh, straight, for all those who know what that means. <laughs> um, and I grew up in the Salt Lake Valley um, with two moms. So I was raised by lesbian parents um, in a very conservative community, yes. which was an interesting experience. <laughs> and then my parents did split up when I was young. So that will be important. And I hope you guys don't get confused with me saying mom all the time if I don't differentiate them very well. <laughs> I'm a student at UVU studying social work. Yeah, I really love what I do so far. Cool. Enjoying life. <laughs> That's awesome. So what do you do at Encircle? Great. Um, that is something I was going to say, but I forgot. So thank you. So Encircle is an LGBTQ resource center mm-hmm. based in, we have two locations in Provo and Salt Lake City. I am currently officially the executive program assistant. So I am the assistant to the program man or the program officer. I also am the volunteer coordinator right now. So that's a lot of work. Um, I do a lot of outreach and mostly I just do emails and I love it. So anything they throw at me, even if it's not under my job description, I love it. That's so. really cool. Just everything that I've learned about in circle. I just love it, which is why I reached out to InCircle. I'm like, hey, I'm doing an LGBTQ podcast season, and I'd love to like interact with you guys. Mm-hmm. So I just love, I love it. I think it's great. So it's cool that you get to work there. Yes, it's an amazing experience. So I was really lucky that a job opened up for me. Yeah, that's <laughs> so cool. So do you work in the Provo one or the Salt Lake one or w- just kind of everything? I work from home. So oh, okay. um, I work on my laptop. And sometimes I go to events or like I'll go to a meeting at one of the houses, but generally I'm not at the houses very much anymore. Gotcha. Well, that's kind of nice. It is for <laughs> school and the fact that I don't live really close to either house. Yeah. It's very helpful that I can just do it on my computer. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Well, we're just going to jump in. Okay. So physical scars, I know you mentioned they're not like super necessarily scars, Mm -hmm. but they're still physical things that happened. So jump on in. Okay. So as I was thinking about this, two came to mind. One is just a weird story that I like to tell because I'm 21. Keep in mind, that's important for the story. I was actually, how old was I? I think I was 19 at the time. So I had just gone to Hawaii with my family and they have this like phrase or belief, right, that you're not supposed to take home any of the lava rocks. Oh, yeah. But then they sell all the lava rocks as, like, souvenirs <laughs> in the gift shops. So you're not supposed to take anything from the beach. But, like, I, I know that they, obviously, they basically farm the yeah. lava rocks. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's fine to take it home on a bracelet, I guess, but not from the beach. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I disregarded that rule because <laughs> I wasn't going to, like, pay for it if I yeah. could just take it anyway. So... Um, so I took home a bunch that I could like save in like a little jar or something. And then I flew home and then the next morning I woke up in like unbearable pain, just like the most excruciating pain I've ever felt. It was in my left side, kind of, they usually say it's in your back where Mm -hmm. you feel it, but I kind of felt it in between my back and my 
front. I don't know. Somewhere in the middle. And I went to my mom and I felt like it was so much pain. I thought I was going to like explode. Like I could not mentally handle what was happening. So I was either going to throw up or pass out or explode. Like it was not, (laughs) my body couldn't handle it. So I like waddled into my mom's room and I was like, I'm in pain. I don't know what's happening. Do I have an appendix on this side of my body? Like what's (laughs) happening? And she kind of tried to remember which side. She's like, no, I'm pretty sure your appendix is on the other side. I don't think that's what's happening. Do we need to call an ambulance? And I was like, yes, I'm going to pass out. Like something's really, really wrong. So I lay down in her bed. She calls the ambulance. They come check me out. And of course, by the time they get there, most of the pain is gone. Of course. So I'm like, great. Well, no reason for you to come, I guess. But so they check me out and they're like, yeah, based on your description, we should probably just take you in and make sure everything's okay. So they took me to the ER And they, like, did an ultrasound and all this stuff. And all my pain was gone. I just kind of had a weird feeling in my legs. Like, that's so. when I'm sick, for whatever reason, my legs react. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) But they they like to do that. So so I know something's wrong if my Mm -hmm. legs are acting weird. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I just felt kind of weird afterwards. And then they did an ultrasound. And they were like, you know, you probably have kidney stones. I was like, what? What do you mean? And they're like, yeah, you might want to go see a specialist. Like, if you're not in pain right now, you can just go home. Like, but you should make an appointment. And I heard in my head, oh, I don't need to. <laughs> like, I heard that it was like a suggestion. I don't know why. I just thought it would like go away. Months later, right? I don't get any more symptoms for months. And then it's summer. I don't even remember when it happened. But the pain comes back. And I finally make an appointment with a specialist. And they're like, yeah, you have kidney stones real bad. Like, you have you have several. We don't know what's wrong with you. Like, you're 19. <laughs> like, you should not have oh kidney gosh. stones. And they were like, maybe it's your soda intake. And I'm like, I drink the normal amount of soda for someone my age. I don't yeah. understand why this is happening to me. So I arranged for some surgery. I did one surgery, which went really well. And they... That time, I think they actually went in and removed them. And then they did another checkup and I had kidney stones on both sides. Oh, my gosh. So so this whole time, they've given me, like, really intense pain medications. And, like, I'm just in pain all the time, basically, because they're trying to pass, but they're too big, right? So I've let it grow for so long over the summer that they're just too massive to pass on their own. So then when they find out that it's in both sides, they're like, okay, we have to have another surgery. So they, like, attacked one side with just, like, they do a vibration Mm -hmm. thing, and then they do a – the other side, they went in and pulled some out. It was like a combo, Mm -hmm. double whammy, right? And one of the things that I really remember from the second surgery is, like, the first one went well. It was at a different hospital. Everyone was great. Bedside manner was great. Woke up fine. Felt great, you know? Just had a stupid stent that was – frustrating. I do not like stents. And then that's part of my scar thing that I'll talk about. But and then the next one was the exact opposite. Completely awful. The like anesthesiologist person couldn't find my vein. Oh. Usually no. they just do like a like a nurse will come do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the nurse wouldn't do it. They were like, "No, I I'm not supposed to do it. The anesthesiologist has to do it." And I'm like, "Okay. You're obviously more trained than this guy." And so he brings in, like, the ultrasound machine. He's like, I need to find your vein. And, like, because and I've never had a problem like this. Like, sometimes my veins are little. Sometimes it's hard to actually find, but mm-hmm. it's not that hard. Yeah. And then he couldn't figure out how to get the ultrasound machine to work to see the veins. And I'm laying here on the operating table trying not to freak out. And I hate needles. 
so bad. I have such bad anxiety about needles. And the nurses next to me are like squeezing my hands like, you're okay. It's going to be okay. I don't have any family in there. And then it was hurting so bad. So he was just digging around in there trying to find it. Oh, right. That's, the, that's horrible. That's t- so not cool. <laughs> and, um, and then I passed out. And I, when I woke up, I heard them saying, it's still not in. It's still not in. And like, I was like, are you kidding me? How long was I out? You could have gotten it in while I was passed out and not freaking out. Like, that was your opportunity. Anyway, so I remember that really well. And then I didn't wake up well from it, and it was just a messy experience. I remember they gave me, like, really strong pain pills, and I was against getting ahead of the pain because I didn't want to, like, Mm over-medicate. So I was just like, tough it out. When I felt the pain coming, I would take something, and then it would get really bad, and then it would go away because I'm an idiot. One time... I started waking me up in the middle of the night and my pain pills just stopped working. Oh my god! And I remember thinking I needed to go to the ER because I took probably more than I was supposed to and different kinds because oh I was in so much pain. And usually my go-to was like to distract myself with the show that didn't make me think, but I could like feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so like a show I'd watched a million times, like Gilmore Girls or something yes. like that. And there was nothing that could help me at all. So luckily I had surgery right after that. So everything was fine. But my scar, besides all those emotional ones that happened, is that I feel like I'm a 40-year-old pregnant woman now because I cannot, or like I've had five kids or something because I cannot hold my bladder for the (laughs) life of me. And like there's so much scarring on my urinary whatever Mm -hmm. from the stents that they used and like all of the surgeries. And like my bladder is really upset at me. (laughs) And just all of that, I just can't tell until I need to go right now. So that's really awful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only 21, guys. Like, this should not be happening to me. No. So I don't know what it's going to be like when I actually have kids because that's going to be a party. Oh, it is. <sighs> and then my other fun story, it's a car accident, so it may be a little bit intense for some people. It was like Christmas. My boyfriend and I were driving. This is after the kidney stones, like okay. three months after the kidney stones oh, were so gone. Oh, so still close, yeah. though. <laughs> yeah. It was a rough year. We were driving through a green light. And you know how you can yield, Mm -hmm. like left turners can yield. And my boyfriend was driving like this big Honda Element thing. So it's boxy, kind of like a roll cage. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it's a very secure car, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going through the green light and the car comes like right in front of us in the intersection. And like we barely miss them. I was like, oh, that was really close. And next thing I know, we're, we're hit by somebody from the left side or the driver's side. And we're rolling and... The car is like I. It doesn't feel like you're rolling yeah. when you're rolling. I don't know if you've ever. I haven't been in a roll, <laughs> um, but it just feels like everything's shaking really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good thing I was holding onto my boyfriend's hand because, like, it, without that, I wouldn't have known if he was safe or like if he was there. But we both had our seatbelts on, and so the car rolled twice and then landed on its side um, on the driver's side. So my boyfriend kind of I don't know if he blacked out or he closed his eyes. He couldn't figure out which one, and he opened his eyes like and his head was right next to the pavement so he was really freaked out yeah I was in shock and I was like hanging from my seatbelt right and I've been raised like do not move wait for first responders you don't know what's broken you don't know if you have head trauma like just yeah. 
stay put even and I was secure I wasn't uncomfortable I mean obviously I was in shock too so I didn't feel anything yeah and then my boyfriend's freaking out because he watches too many action movies and he's like the car could explode blah 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 blah. and I'm like no 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 we're like having an argument (laughs) in the in the sideways car being like no 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 no. we're not gonna I'm not gonna get out we're supposed to wait they'll be here soon I'm positive at least 10 people called 911 like before I know it, somebody is on top of the car, so on top of my door, pulling open the door and reaching in for me. And my boyfriend is like, grab her hand, I'm going to unclip her, and you pull her out. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> Like, no, I'm not going to move. And this guy pulls me out. I get down on the pavement, and then he pulls Jackson out, my boyfriend, and then we say, oh, shoot, we need our cell phones so we can call somebody that this just happened. So he goes back in, the guy who helped us out, to grab our phones and everything and hops back out. Um... And then we realize, we find out that he's the guy who hit us. So he was in this like really low riding pickup truck and he hit us just right that our car was a little bit top heavy and it just flipped over. But like I said, it was a roll cage. So it was just super protected. We actually, we didn't break anything. We didn't even have head problems. We had a little bit of like whiplash, mm-hmm. but we were both okay. And I denied EMTs letting me, <laughs> letting them look at me because I'm dumb. I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Even though I know that shock, you know. I remember when I got out of the car, like, there was a woman outside, and she was like, are you okay, you know? And I just ran to her and hugged her. Like, I was so freaked out, and she just hugged me, and she's like, it's okay, it's okay, you know, how are are you okay? And I realized, I found out that that was his mother-in-law. So that, she was in the car that almost hit us. So he was following his mother-in-law and his wife, who were in that car, and didn't see us. And I know that when people say that, everyone's like, oh, how can you not see something but I've seen like it's possible you know Mm -hmm. your brain just like filters stuff out when you're not thinking about it Mm -hmm. because our brains suck sometimes (laughs) even though our eyes are gathering the information the brain doesn't process it and then stuff like that happens so it was pretty intense all of our Christmas presents were in the car so everything was broken basically (laughs) we lost a lot of stuff but we got reimbursed And then, you know, we thought everything would be fine and we weren't in school. We weren't working. We didn't miss a lot of stuff and we did some good healing and it was fine. And then three months later, I developed shoulder pain in my left shoulder. And it's like all the muscles behind, like behind my scapula and down my, I don't know, it's a bicep. And then, and it's so bad that it like wakes me up and I'm like, I don't know what's happening. And then a couple weeks later, it happens on my right shoulder as well. So I'm pretty sure that it's tied to the car accident, Mm -hmm. but I'm not quite sure. And then throughout that time, I'm also dealing with trauma from the car accident. I had a really hard time driving afterwards. I had to go see a therapist when it finally became like, okay, you have to go back to school. You have to drive Mm -hmm. and be comfortable with that. So I learned a lot of skills that I can use on my clients one day (laughs) as a social worker. So I dealt with a lot of that all at once. And then my shoulders hurt. For about a year and a half, I went to physical therapy for probably a year and a couple months, just trying to figure out what the problem was. My first physical therapist thought it was one problem. My next one thought it was like a posture problem and they couldn't figure it out. And finally, just this summer, I went in to see a specialist and like got an MRI done and stuff. They're like, there's no damage. Can't really tell what it is. But I think it's just some inflammation that hasn't been going away with your regular treatment. So we're going to give you a steroid shot. I hate shots. Steroid shots are probably one of the worst shots. Oh, no. <laughs> so I got one, and it helped so, so much. And then I was like, okay, I know it's going to suck, but I'm going to get another one. <laughs> and I got the other shoulder fixed. And now a couple months, it's been about a month and a half since the last shot, and I'm 
basically 100% better. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? I went through so much for a year and a half, and all I needed was two steroid shots. Oh, my gosh. So that that stuff, I I don't know. I'm really good at getting scars that you can't see, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so no one believes me. Yeah, I've never broken anything. Never even been stung by a bee. So, yeah, that's about my, you know, nature just has to make up something for me Uh to make me suffer. I feel like that just happens. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's like, no, you're too good. Like, you're too clean. Right. It's like, you need some experience. Yes. Here, we'll give you some. Oh, don't you just love how that happens? Absolutely. So are you a natural redhead then? I am not. Okay, you're not. Mm -hmm. Okay, because I was going to bring up with the veins. Mm -hmm. I've actually heard, because I'm a redhead, I am a redhead, and other redheads that I've talked to, they're like, oh, they always have issues with my Mm -hmm. veins. And so it's like... I totally get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I know. I like to think of myself as a natural redhead, but yes. not quite. No. Well, you totally rock it. Thank it you. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I just have bad veins. I don't know. So the car accident, mm-hmm. that would be super scary. Yeah. Like even if you were like mostly technically okay, mm-hmm. I can see how that would make some issues and create anxiety <laughs> yes. in like driving and everything. Yeah. It was really scary for a while. And because it's the kind of thing where your brain just kind of goes when you're driving. Like, I've been trying to be a defensive driver anyway from my parents and, like, always expect someone's going to do something dumb mm-hmm. and be prepared to react to it. Yep. And that was one of those things where you can't react. You don't see it. You can't expect it. It's like getting hit from behind, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do. So that was already hard for me to deal with because I was like, we could have done this. We could have slowed down. But you don't know. Mm-mm. How much worse it could have been yeah. if we hadn't rolled. Honestly, that might have been our saving grace that we rolled and we had no damage. You know, the car mm-hmm. was totaled. But yeah. <laughs> but if it had been hit in the front, you know, maybe mm-hmm. glass. I don't know. You never know what could have yeah. happened. But when I would be driving, I would just constantly have these invasive thoughts of like somebody veering into me and hitting me or like visualizing the car accident. Or like when I think about the accident, I can feel it. I can feel the impact and then like taste how how I what I was tasting in the accident it was like metal but it wasn't like the blood metal that you taste if you mm-hmm. like bite your tongue it was like it's like I was feeling that impact so intensely that I could taste the metal I don't know it was just ex- a full body experience so mm-hmm. anytime a recurring thought would happen it would be like a physical Reaction. memory yeah of the trauma and so it took a while to work through that and get rid of those thoughts and mm-hmm. now I just have normal ones <laughs> normal defensive driving <laughs> yeah. thoughts like oh that guy's being a little funny yeah. Better slow down so mm-hmm. nothing happens. But it was a long time because I didn't go into therapy for about six months after the car ha- car accident happened when I finally acknowledged mm-hmm. that, like, you should probably – like, someone can help you with this. It's not a big deal. Yeah. I was in treatment for just a couple months, and then I was pretty good after that. I have a lot of good coping skills now. Good. <laughs> but, yeah, so it was an interesting physical and emotional Yeah experience. Mm -hmm. I love that you just said it wasn't a big deal. (laughs) Like you knew that someone could be there to help you. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't a big deal. Like I wish everybody had that thought about therapy and like getting help because if everyone had that thought, I feel like we would live in a much better society. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. Well, it helps that like that's a huge part of social work and anyone in the Mm -hmm. therapy profession. It's like you need to sort out your stuff and see a therapist regularly. And it's kind of like your own kind of supervision, working through things and 
understanding yourself before you can like try to understand someone else. Yeah. So it's a big value in social work. And I've been to therapy a couple times in my life anyway. So it was just more of a matter of like, can we pay for it? <laughs> then, <laughs> then should I go or not? Yes. So. Isn't that, oh, I just think that people should have a better like attitude towards therapy. Absolutely. And I think it's definitely shifting. Mm -hmm. I've seen that a lot. Mm -hmm. Like there really is becoming a shift of, it's totally fine to go to therapy, which I really appreciate because mm -hmm. it, I think it needs to be more widespread. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. So let's shift then okay. to the internal scar. Mm -hmm. So whatever you want to talk about, jump on in. I guess we'll start off a little easy. Okay. Um, I think a lot of my pain has been emotional or internal. Mm -hmm. But growing up, so growing up, I was raised kind of in the LGBTQ community a little bit because like all my moms knew other women who had kids and other lesbians and it was like a big group of friends right so yeah. it was very normal to me very like felt kind of like family you know mm -hmm. and I had kids that I could hang out with that were that had the same family dynamic as me but when I started going to elementary school that wasn't common yeah right like nobody in my class had parents like that or any relatives even who were uh -huh. in the LGBTQ community and a lot of them were young and hadn't had time to process or even think about what it meant to be gay. A lot of them were raised in the LDS church. Back in a time, you could still argue it's pretty not fun yeah. uh -huh. <laughs> um, for LGBTQ people in the church. But back then, especially, like there wasn't really much discussion going on in the early yeah. 2000s. It about... was just, this is no. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So I had kids who would bully me a lot and like call me a lesbian and like say if I was holding hands with one of my girlfriends, like you're, you're a lesbian, you know. You know, and I don't even remember most of them because I don't care. But um, but I do remember as a kid just being like, that's so dumb. Like, that's not even an insult yeah. to me. It's just inaccurate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I was like, it's just not true. So I'm mad that it's not true that you're lying about me. But it was never like, that's a horrible thing to call someone, which is what a lot of other kids felt. Yeah. Obviously, that's why they used it as an insult. Yeah. So I was kind of resilient that way. I was like, that's just dumb. <laughs> um. So, I mean, I dealt with other drama. Girls are petty, mm -hmm. you know. So I dealt with plenty of bullying and pettiness and stuff as a kid that is typical, mm -hmm. I think. Um, didn't really bother me too much. Nowadays, especially, like, it's like nothing nowadays. But one of the things that was hard for me was, like, I had friends whose parents wouldn't let me hang out with them or who wouldn't let their kids come over to my house. Or, like, I had one friend in particular whose parents were, like, super against my parents and who they were and like would kind of be okay with me coming over to hang out but like her daughter never really got very close with me and like we couldn't really do very much stuff together. I was rarely allowed to sleep over at other people's houses and they were never allowed to sleep over at my house until like high school just because parents were really I they were I don't know why they felt like my parents would like spread the gayness to them. <laughs> I don't know like and a lot of people assumed that I would be a lesbian because my parents were. They acted like it was some kind of learned thing. And I'm here to tell y'all, if you don't know, first of all, it's not learned. <laughs> I'm living proof as a straight woman that it's not learned. I also think I learned a lot about gender roles and stuff. You know, mm -hmm. people are always saying like, oh, it's learned, it's learned, it's learned. You're taught to be a woman. You're taught to be this or that. You're taught to think certain ways. And I agree that some of that is true to an extent, but like neither of my moms were super feminine. 
and I am super feminine. Like I <laughs> am very emotionally reactive. I'm very into pretty things. I like wearing makeup. I like doing my hair. Um, I really value my appearance. Anybody who meets me, you automatically know what my pronouns are. You know, um, I fit the mold. I did not learn that from my parents, <laughs> like neither of them. Um, they didn't know how to do hair. They didn't know what to do with me. I had a bowl cut most of my life. Like, oh my gosh. yeah, like um, they're just like, that's easy. I can do that. Or my I remember one of my moms, the one who had me. We'll call her Jay. How about that? OK, that works. Um, Jay would. She really, really, really wanted me to be a tomboy, just like her, because she's such a tomboy. You look at her and you think, oh, yeah, got it. Like some, she's really androgynous. Mm-hmm. Um, she has an androgynous face. She has a short boy cut, wears really baggy clothing, a slight frame. You don't see a lot of curves, you know, so it's really difficult to tell which gender she is. So they'll be like, like there were times when I was younger that people would come into the bathroom and think that my mother was a man and get security. And then they'd like peek in and be like, yeah, that's a woman. It's no big deal. Like, <laughs> um, so that's happened a lot, but I tell that because she really, really wanted me to be like her and be into sports and softball and all the stuff she was into. And she like, one day she forced me to take a picture with a softball and a baseball bat and a glove and like a hat. Right. And we still have this picture and I just look so unimpressed and so <laughs> upset. I'm just like, I want to go play with my dolls. Like, leave me <laughs> alone. And so like, I just, yeah, I look like I'm ready to bail out of there. And after, after she realized that she couldn't like impress me or like, like try to guide me to be yeah. more tomboyish, she let it go. And I wore princess dresses. I had all of the Barbie things. Everything I owned was pink. My room was pink. And that was not anything my parents taught me, you know? (laughs) I didn't even have siblings, so it wasn't like I learned it anywhere, even from TV at that age, you know? Mm -hmm. It was just like, well, that's what I like. Yep. Take me to Toys R Us. I want all the pink. That's my area. And nowadays, it's not like that. I kind of (laughs) rebelled and went to blue, but still very feminine. So, So some of that, I mean, a lot of that got better when I was older. People were less judgmental. High school, uh, like all of my friends growing up were Mormon or LDS, however you'd like Whatever. like to call it. Yeah. I, they were the best friends. I've had a lot of them and a lot of them are still my friends. I love them dearly. I know a lot about the church, <laughs> um, even though I'm not a member or have only gone a couple times. But I really care about my friends and care about what they value and all that stuff. And I've had friends who are super understanding and loving and love my parents and don't judge me for any of that. But there were times in high school and people really were thinking about, they're like, I love you, but I don't approve of your parents. You know, I don't approve of their decisions. It's like, like, how do I, how do I explain it to you? I had friends who would be like, well, don't you miss having a dad? And I was like, no, I've never had a dad. I don't really know what that's like. And I have two parents, so I don't feel like I'm missing anything, you know, um, and they would be really adamant about it. Like, like you have to have a father figure in your life. You need a male model in your life. And it's like, nope, really, I don't have that many. I have like two uncles. Like, <laughs> I hardly see. Like, I really don't need a male model. And I think my earlier example illustrates that. I was like, I don't know. I did not learn gender roles from people <laughs> very well. Maybe as I got older, but not really. So a lot of my emotional scars kind of started there, but I was pretty resilient to that stuff. And my mm-hmm. parents raised me to be really resilient and strong and yeah. um, a good person, all that's those things. Most, like, that's what matters. Right? Like- <laughs> <laughs> I know. And they taught me to be really strong and I'm really grateful for them. And I am i could not imagine 
any other life than being born to two moms. And like, I absolutely love it. And I've learned so much and been exposed to so much from it that I'm really, really grateful for. When So my parents split up J and D, we'll call okay. the other one D, um, split up when I was four. And so I got, was really used to divorce life too. Like that didn't really seem to affect me very much because mm-hmm. I just like grew up with it and it was no big deal. I remember asking my mom, I was like, when did you tell me that you were splitting up? She was like, I don't think we really did. You just kind of knew. And then it was no big deal. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. Sounds like me. You're very resilient. Yeah, yeah, very. I'm very lucky. I would love to know where that comes from. So, but when I got older, so Dee didn't really have very many partners. It was really me focused, wanted to take care of me, was super like a physical support, like any food I needed, any clothing made my room really comfortable, like really tried to take care of me really well, like her parents did. And be the best mom she could be. And Jay was more of the emotional mom. That She was where I got a lot of my emotion and like connection and that kind of thing. So I got a lot of physical support from Dee and a lot of emotional support from Jay. And the problem with that is Jay was in many relationships and has been through her own trauma and experienced her own things that lead her to make, I would say, poor relationship <laughs> decisions um, that affected me as a kid. I mean, I would argue that in elementary school and preschool, I didn't really know it, but the more Dee talks about it, the more I realize I was kind of neglected um, when I was younger and emotionally, especially, and just like from my, from Jay's girlfriend at the time. And Jay is a nurse, so she would work 12 hour days and, you know, so, but I always split the time between my parents. So I think that was part of my resilience that I always had Dee to fall back on. And then Jay would be single for a while and everything would be great. And she was my mom that I knew and loved. And she was so amazing and strong. And I loved seeing her at work. She would just demonstrate what I want to be, you know, and the strength and resilience she has. And then she would get in another relationship that would be really destructive for her or for me. Um, And her current relationship, I was started when I was about 11 or 10. um, And we moved in with them. Um, I'll call that partner L. And that's where most of my emotional trauma and like that stuff sits. I still need to go through it <laughs> with a therapist. I was emotionally abused all the time, screamed at, yelled at, um, manipulated. It was like walking on eggshells constantly when I was over there um, for years and years and years. And I have this like self-doubt that like, oh, nobody's going to believe me because I don't have evidence. You know, I don't have, I don't even have a lot of my journals because if I wrote any journals, Elle would find it and then scream at me, you know, or um, or tell, even worse, tell Jay. And then Jay would not scream at me, but like really make me feel awful for writing those things or for feeling those things. Um, so I didn't really have an outlet. And even if I would tell Dee things, she would get really angry and want to stand up for me and like try to change things. So then she would tell Jay and L or like get upset somehow that they would find out. And then I would get in huge trouble for talking about it. So I think that was the hardest time is it felt so isolating. And none of my friends had ever been through anything like that. But because I wasn't being physically abused or sexually abused or anything like that, I felt like it wasn't that big of a deal. So nowadays I see that it is, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I really understand how how powerfully that affects people. And Elle was an alcoholic and anytime she would drink, it would get worse. Camping was the absolute worst because it was just like four days in a trailer dealing with it and... Um, I'm pretty sure she has borderline personality disorder. Paired with alcohol is not good. No. That's where I say the walking on eggshells comes from. It's very much that. And I would hear her arguing with Jay and just like screaming at each other about me. Jay would try to advocate for me 
and be like, we'll just sit down and talk with her or like, you know, what do you want me to do? Like, she's not doing anything wrong. And then Elle would freak out and be like, I'm such, I, me, I'm such a bad daughter. I'm like, and a lot of my self-worth problems came from that. She would tell me I wasn't, like, I didn't have value. She wouldn't say that, but I can't remember what she would say, but she made me believe that I didn't have value or I wouldn't ever be good at anything or I love to sing so much and I would sing all the time especially as a kid like I wasn't super great but I was learning and she would yell at me not to sing in the house or be like uh, or criticize my voice and say I didn't have a good voice yeah so a lot of the things I really cared about she just totally tore down um, and my only re- like solace was my head or my quotes I was obsessed with music and quotes during that time trying to find any like connection or maybe others who felt the same that mm-hmm. I did but I was really lucky to have D right? Like to go back every week, every other week and spend time with her and have some rest from that. And what's crazy is um, I developed situational depression during that time. I didn't realize it at the time, but we would go to, from doctor to doctor to doctor trying to figure out what was wrong with me because I had all these physical symptoms, um, headaches, nausea, stomach pain, tiredness. I was exhausted all the time. And these were like the only way that I could express my depression because any other way was not valid, right? Any sadness was not valid because she wasn't doing anything wrong. The house was fine. Everything was fine. Everything was normal. So I couldn't talk about any of that. So it was really, I understand now that that was like a physical manifestation of what I was going through. But like, we even got my heart checked out (laughs) to see, like we did so much stuff. And I realized now, like it it was just depression. Because as soon as I moved out, when I got my car and I think I was like 17, when I moved into Dee's house, maybe I was 18, I can't remember. Um, as soon as I moved out, I was a completely different person. Just lit up, right? Came to life. And all that depression went away, And which is a miracle because it runs in my family. <laughs> so you'd think, oh. <laughs> you'd think that I would still have it, but I'm really lucky and I don't. It was pretty crazy to me. That was when I realized that it was depression because mm-hmm. I was just completely different afterwards. I felt so good. Uh, kind of a side effect of that was when... I got out of the situation. I felt like everything was fine now. You know, like I'm out. That's not going to affect me anymore. I'm me. I feel great. It's over. And of course it's not. And I've blocked a lot of it out. And about the last year, it started to come back. And I've started to be more open to what happened and trying to think about it. Because part of that is like, I feel like I don't remember enough. So I don't have enough evidence. So it didn't happen. And that was something I was taught basically during that time. That if even if I had evidence, it was like, yeah, you screamed at me yesterday for this. I couldn't say that or it wasn't true or it wasn't evidence, you know, in Elle's eyes. So that was really hard. It's still something I struggle with. And even in my relationship with my boyfriend, I'm like, I don't feel like bringing this up because what if I'm misremembering it? Or what if that's invalid to think, you know, or to be upset about or... Like, I still struggle a lot with those things. And that's kind of what's coming back to me is I'm realizing how much of my current behavior is because of that time. I'm really conflict avoidant because in that time, my only solace was retreating, right? I could never argue. I could never win. Nothing I tried, no matter how calm I tried to be, if I cried, if I got angry, no matter what, I could not win. I wasn't heard, you know? So I just would retreat. And that's still, I do that all the time. Like, it's really hard for me to feel safe in a conversation, even with people who I know I'm safe with, you know, with Dee, with my boyfriend, with my friends. But I'll just retreat automatically because I don't want to deal with the conflict. In my relationships, I was really scared of getting into a toxic relationship like that. And I saw my mom's habits, right, of just that pattern of falling into worse relationship after worse relationship after worse and not being able to leave. You know, even when I was being hurt, 
she couldn't leave. And that was like betrayal to me, right? Mm -hmm. So I struggled with my first couple relationships in high school because I didn't, I, like, I didn't want to tolerate any bad behavior, right? Yeah, uh-huh. I was like, I went the opposite. Some people fall into that pattern, right? And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get married once, not divorced. I'm not going to deal with any of this. We're going to have regular conversations. We're not going to fight. Like, yeah. kind of unrealistic <laughs> expectations in some ways. But I was really trying to protect myself and not let myself get into a relationship like that. So I dated one guy like three times because I would break up after a couple of weeks when something would go wrong. Instead of talking to him, I'd just leave. And then, <laughs> or it'd be like, yeah, I've been upset for like all the time we've been dating. Bye. Um, and then, because I just couldn't, I couldn't address the conflict. I could not do it. I was like, I'm just going to leave. Because that's what I had control over in yeah. my head. And in my current relationship, we've been together about two and a half years. I was going to um, ask if it was the same boyfriend from the... No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I met him after I finally officially broke up with that guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, good timing. And he was still in high school. I had just graduated a year. Um, so I'd been graduated for a year after high school. He went to the same high school as me, but we'd never met at the high school okay. somehow. <laughs> but I was into theater, so all my younger friends were still in shows, so I would go back and watch them. And he would be there because he knew my friends. So he was younger than me, so... He knew the younger friends. Yeah. And we just kept running into each other until we started dating. So it worked out. But it was really hard for me because his family's divorced too. A lot of his family members are divorced. Both of us kind of have that idea that like we don't want to get divorced. We want to be really intentional in our relationships mm-hmm. and really try hard to commit and make it work. But we want to make it work in a relationship that's functional, right? <laughs> Not in a relationship that's dysfunctional. And it's been really – I'm still working on it, obviously. I'm not – there yet. I'm still trying really hard to overcome a lot of that trauma mm-hmm. and those habits that I have. I'm trying really hard to speak up when something's bothering me and not invalidate my feelings because, and he's also very logical. So he'll be like, well, why are you feeling that way? Like what happened? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I just feel it. So then I feel like, oh, well, if I don't have a logical answer, I shouldn't bring it up. And that's just a habit from my stepmom. You know, that's not really a issue that he's caused. He's never tried to invalidate my feelings. He's never done anything like that, but it automatically sparks that in me. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. I can't trust this, or I need more evidence, or I need to feel 100% sure before I bring this to him, which is obviously not good, right? Yeah. And then he has been taught kind of just keep everything inside and not talk about things. And I really want him to talk about things. not good. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's not good. He's kind of learned that from his dad and his mom, honestly, to just not address what's actually going on, right? And just deal with it yourself. It's your responsibility to handle yourself and how you act and move on. And that's not functional yeah. either. So <laughs> so we both are trying really hard to overcome those and we're aware of it, which I think is, right, the first step. Oh, that's like a huge part of the battle is just being aware of the... Absolutely. Being aware of it, yeah. Absolutely. So we're trying to work through it and I he knows my past and I know his. And so we're trying... If something's bothering me, I'll be like, I don't feel safe talking about it right now, you know, and I'll, and I'll explain, like, I want to retreat and this is what I want. You have to let me sometimes, you know, or you have to let Mm -hmm. me sleep it off or you have to let me think about it before I'm ready to bring it up. And that's the thing is he's so logical. He doesn't realize he's making it feel a little bit unsafe for me. He's just trying to figure it out. (laughs) He's like, what do you mean? What's going on? And I'm like, never mind. I'm good. Nothing's happening, I guess, because I can't prove it. (laughs) Like, yeah. So it's, it's a party. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so you lived 
with Jay for what six to eight years? Um, so I did half and half the whole yeah, my whole life. Half. But but before you like officially moved out when you were older with L, yeah, yeah. I it was five or six years or six of actually years. living there. Okay. Yeah, it would be really hard for that not to have really negative, long lasting impressions on you. Absolutely, like yeah, I don't know of anyone who could live with that and not be very affected by it Mm -hmm. so and of course it's not going to be flipping a switch right just ending it which is what I thought it was right (laughs) (laughs) so but I think it's great because really just knowing that there's something you need to work through is half the battle Mm -hmm. it really is absolutely in even knowing what you need to work on so you've already got the point where you know something's wrong yeah and you're even to the point where you know what is wrong yeah I know (laughs) so that's like a huge part I agree now I just gotta fix it right it's like I have all the awareness in the world I just gotta it's really hard because it's all biological basically or just like I don't even think notice I'm doing it Mm -hmm. until later and like I had a really rough summer because of it because I was just bottling it all up and trying to process it and be like, is this really a big deal? Do I want to bring it up? Do I want to have that conversation and have the possibility of it not going well? Which is normal, mm-hmm. right? It's normal for me to say something and maybe he gets upset because he's like, I don't feel the same way. And that's called an argument. Mm-hmm. And that's normal. <laughs> and, like, normal. Um, and we've never had an argument because we're both like scared of it, mm-hmm. I think. It's not my goal to have an argument, but it is my goal to bring things up sooner. Yeah. And like, even if I don't have a reason to just bring it up and be like, look, this is bothering me. And I'm really trying to model that for him too. One thing I wanted to say, mm-hmm. um, I've seen it on Facebook. I don't know. I've seen it a lot of places. People are like, what is some of the worst marriage advice you've ever gotten? And one of the things that pops up over and over again is don't go to bed angry. Yes, I hate hate that one. I hate hate it it so much. I have to go to bed angry. I cannot, because I can't have a discussion if I'm angry. Or I can't, what if I say something mean that I don't mean that just comes off or I have a bad tone? Yeah. Yep. Because you're emotionally too invested at that moment. Mm -hmm. And like, I very much believe, because I used to buy into that, like, don't go to bed angry. Mm -hmm. But now after being married for nine years, I'm like, yeah, that's really terrible. Honestly. (laughs) It's the worst. Like, you need time sometimes. You do. You just, you have to take your, take yourself out of the situation for a little bit, cool down, calm down. And then come back together and have a conversation. Right. And it goes so much better. It does. It goes so much better. Yeah. And I tell my boyfriend all the time that I'm like a toddler. I need, if, if I'm upset and you don't know why, and I don't know why, treat me like I'm a toddler, right? I need like four things. I either need sleep or food or hugs or something else, you know, like, yes. or I need to pee. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know, I need some kind of basic need that's not being met. And once I get that, I'm fine. You know, once mm-hmm. I eat a cookie, I'm good. Once I take a nap, back to normal. Yes. It's just like a biological recalibration. It's like, okay, yes. I'm good. So I do like going to bed angry. It mm-hmm. like, because I just feel, I get so stuck in my head mm-hmm. and it just goes over and over and over again. And I can't tell, again, it's my insecurity, but I can't tell if I'm blowing it up in my head or if it's actually reasonable. And like, yep. but once I go to bed and I wake up, I'm like, I'm not mad anymore. Maybe I don't need, maybe I don't need to pick that battle, you know? Like, Oh my gosh, I totally get it. And sleep is a huge thing. Overall, people don't get enough sleep. They don't get the sleep that they need. They really don't. Really? And so for me, when I'm getting to a point, I'm like, I need more sleep. 
like mm-hmm. desperately. Mm-hmm. Like we'll be trying to have a conversation. I'll be like, I need more sleep. <laughs> like we cannot do this. I have to go to bed. Yes. <laughs> and so totally. like, I cannot say enough like about sleep. Mm-hmm. People are I, like, oh, I just need to sleep less so I can get more done. I'm like, no, 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 no. no. You need to sleep more yes. and then you will get more done. <laughs> I am the same way. I That is like my a huge value of mine. If yes. sleep could be considered a value, like that is one of my yeah. core values. It's like mm-hmm. I need sleep. People in general need sleep. I'm yes. not getting Alzheimer's over here. I'm going to sleep, protect my brain. Be able to actually work when I wake up. Mm-hmm. Sleep is huge for me. It I completely is. agree. Yes. Never give up sleep. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is, have you ever heard of nonviolent communication? I mean, it sounds intuitive, but no, not specifically. No. Okay. So Marshall Rosenberg was like a really big, I don't know, he really pushed it out there. Mm-hmm. And so he's like the name in nonviolent communication. He's since passed away. I've even mentioned it on this podcast before because it's amazing. Uh So nonviolent communication, it is absolutely phenomenal because it's really hard to talk about everything. There's so much to it. It's really hard to be (laughs) succinct. I'll have to look it up. But like you can find a bunch of videos on YouTube Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And he's got books and stuff that are out. But I absolutely love it because it's really just trying to get to needs Mm -hmm. because that's where a lot of problems come Mm -hmm. is a need not being met you have a need that needs to be met and it's not right and so it's causing issues Mm -hmm. and so the whole thing is figuring out what you need what you're lacking and communicating that to the person that you're trying to talk to Mm -hmm. and doing it in a non-judgmental way because we unknowingly like our language is quite violent we say, you did this and right. it made me this way. Right. And so it pushes a lot of judgment and violence out, even unknowingly, like not meaning, not meaning to. It's just the language that we have. Mm-hmm. And so he's really trying to help you completely shift your mind to not passing judgment, not saying you made me feel this way, but rather you said this. And when you said this, and you have to be very specific, when you said this thing I felt this way. So it's not saying you made me feel this way. It's you said this, and when you said it, this is how I felt. So you're taking ownership for your feelings. Right, right. But then you can also say, to help you just get out things, say, I need this, and I'm not getting it. Mm-hmm. And it really helps communicate more. So that way they understand where the lack is. I'm trying to give an example. So my husband... I do a lot more of the mental and emotional work, mm-hmm. like, around the house and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, I know what chores need to be done. Mm-hmm. I know what needs to be cleaned, because like, you know, I'm yep. the one that stays home and he works and whatnot. And so I was getting really overwhelmed, because we have three kids, young kids. I have a five-year-old, two-year-old, and a four-month-old. Oh, man. So, like, I have three young kids on top of trying to run our apartment and do the grocery, you know, like, just I was feeling very overwhelmed. And so I came to him and I had been trying to figure out how to do it in like the nonviolent communication way because it always goes better. It prevents the argument from happening, Mm -hmm. but it helps you communicate the needs that need to be met. And so I finally approached him and I was like, I am feeling very overwhelmed and I have a need for more help around the apartment. And so we had a conversation and I was like, I really don't like taking the trash out. So you could meet my need by take by being in charge of taking the trash out. 
And it completely, like, no argument. Like, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> there, the, there's not much room there for an argument mm-hmm. um, because he's hearing my need. He's not trying to guess it. He's he's just hearing what I need. And then we figure out a solution to have him help me meet that need. I really like that. And so it's really cool. Like, mm-hmm. nonviolent communication has totally, at the risk of sounding kind of ridiculous, changed my life. It really has. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've used, because I took a class in mediation where we learned about crucial conversations. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. I haven't. But I would recommend it for everyone because it teaches you how to have really important conversations in work, in your relationships. Anything that's right would be considered a crucial conversation when it could become conflict or Mm -hmm. like is scary. You know, you don't really want to talk about it, but you have to. Yeah. But it's similar and, but instead of needs, it focuses on, like, how to approach somebody, how to say, I noticed this happened, and I'm wondering if you could explain why it happened, you know? And so you yeah. you really try to, like, make it non-threatening. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, and then it teaches you how to solve problems together with people and, like, find common ground, even if you don't feel like you can, right? So, like, I learned it for the purpose of going to small claims court and, like, mediating that, mm-hmm. right? Where people feel go in and feel like they have nothing in common, are never going to agree. And the goal is to get them to agree, mm-hmm. right? So they don't have to go to court. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so I really recommend that one as well. But I'll definitely look into that. Okay. It was Crucial Conversations. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very interested in this kind of stuff. So yeah. I'm totally going to look that. Yeah. We'll, we'll swap Kay. tools. <laughs> yes, I love that. Oh, man. I'm going to go back now. Sorry. No, to you're good. The time you lived with J and L is Mm -hmm. what we're calling. Correct. Are they still together? Yes. They're still together. Is that something where you go over very much or is it very just maybe every once in a while? That's a good question. Um, I have set the boundary with myself that I will not see L. Um, she has not ever apologized, not ever acknowledged that she did anything. In fact, she often blames me that there's something wrong with me that I'm making it up, all this stuff. So even going on this podcast, I'm risking someone hearing it, finding out, telling her. That's why I use letters, yes. <laughs> not names. Um, and and I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I'm, like, I'm getting to a point where I'm comfortable with that and she doesn't have power over me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that like she will never come to a place where she can, she and I can reconcile, you know? Yeah. And Jay does try often to get me to come over more, try to reconcile with Elle. Recently, she just called me and was like, why don't you just give her another chance? And I was like, are you serious? And I've become a lot more vocal and like actually standing up for myself, which has been a great tool. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm like, no, like she's never apologized. She's never acknowledged it. She's never even apologized for what she's done to you because obviously Jay was also yeah. emotionally abused during that time and is still being emotionally abused and manipulated. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. And for a while, it really hurt to leave because I knew I was leaving my mom in that situation. And while I had a resource to leave, she didn't. And that was really hard for me to accept because mm-hmm. I love her so much. And I forgive her for everything she's put me through. And I've made peace with that because I can set my own boundaries now. Mm-hmm. You know, I can protect myself when she couldn't. And I'm at peace with that. But I cannot let her yeah. mess up those boundaries, you know. And that's really mm-hmm. hard because, like, I want her to be at my wedding one day. I want her to take care of my kids. 
you know, I want to have a really good relationship with her so badly. I love her so much. And she and I are very much alike, you know? Yeah. But I have come to terms with that boundary where it's like, if that means I only see you once a month or even less than that sometimes, then that's what it has to be, you know? Because Elle still to this day will not let my mom go out um, and do things. She doesn't have any friends. She can't, like classic toxic relationship, right? Yeah. And like when Jay and I go out to eat or something, she'll often pair it with another errand she has to do like lie and say that she's going to do this thing or because she'll get in trouble and it's just not worth the hassle to deal with that fight. And I am not going to fight for that anymore. You know, I think at one point I really tried to fight her and be like, just tell her you're seeing me. What's wrong with that? I feel like the other woman, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm not, you're not allowed to just say you're coming to see your daughter. And now I'm kind of over it. It's like, you know, if you really want to see me and have that relationship with me, you will. And I'll, try my best, but I'm busy too. I have a life. I have good supports in my life. I have a great life right now and I'm not going to risk that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. But absolutely. yeah, so it's been interesting trying to come to terms with that and um, be okay with Mm -hmm. our relationship and hopefully one day it'll be better. But yeah, I think this is a really good place to end because we're out of time, but I, I just love the, this whole boundaries thing. Because it's really hard. Mm-hmm. I it's really hard to set boundaries, especially for people with people that you love mm-hmm. and that you care about. But you have to take care of yourself first. Absolutely, that's the number one thing. Is now you're in a safe place, mm-hmm. and you cannot put yourself. No, I can't out go back that. to that. You, you can't go no. back to that, and so you had to set that boundary. Mm-hmm. And so I just I think that's really important. Is if you're struggling with something with someone. You've got to put a boundary there. Mm-hmm. It's it's not even a question of if it's a good idea or like you have to set that boundary no matter yeah. how difficult it is because you deserve to be in a safe space. Absolutely. And you, you don't deserve to have that negativity in your life. Yeah. And unfortunately, you have to be the one to set the boundary. Right. And it's not easy for anybody no. who's struggling with that. Like it's not easy. It took me years yeah. to actually be okay with that and get over it and commit to it and Mm -hmm. really hold myself to it. And that's really difficult, but it's possible. And my life is so nice (laughs) now, you know, it's so great. Um, Can I add something? I don't know if you want to. Yeah, go ahead. um, However you want to do it. But I feel like, especially since this is part of your LGBTQ series. Yeah. I feel like I was trying to think of how more I could relate to that. Because I feel like this is kind of close to your women's series more than. Oh, no, it's still totally LGBTQ. Yeah. But um, I feel like. I've kind of grown up in a weird juxtaposition between the LDS church and all my conservative friends who are in traditional families and the LGBTQ community because I'm not, I'm straight, right? I'm not part of any of the LGBTQ community. Um, My family is, so I have a little bit of that tie, but I'm not LDS, but I'm straight. So like that's, I'm caught in this really weird middle space Mm -hmm. and I'm okay. I'm confident in myself and all that, but it's kind of weird, especially as I'm in a job. In the LGBTQ community, there's a lot of this pressure to feel like I belong in either community, right? With my LDS friends. That's why I know so much about the church. Uh So I really want to fit in and belong and not have them have to explain things to me and just like understand and try to relate to them. And same with the LGBTQ community. Like I feel like sometimes I have to prove that I kind of know what they're going through and I kind of know what their experience is like because I've grown up in it. But at the same time, it's not the same, right? It's been this really weird that is a, kind of balancing yeah. act. Um, it's been really interesting. 
and to be kind of an honorary member, (laughs) I guess, whereas other people would maybe judge me and feel like I'm not really part of it. I don't really know what it's like. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that's an important piece that like I'm curious about what other kids like me feel, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, especially growing up in Utah. I bet in other places it's not that big of a deal. Right. Or in other non less conservative Mm -hmm. environments. But for me, it's always been interesting because it's like, well, I don't really fit in in either space, but I love being part of both. And there's not really a middle ground for me. (laughs) Nobody really understands what I'm going through. And working at Encircle, it's like I love it because it's no sides, only love. Right. Yeah. Everybody who works with me and like in the houses is super accepting. But but sometimes I do wonder, it's like, like, do I belong less because of that? Or do I have less reason to be here or to speak up about something? So that's I'm trying to to deal with that and try to just be myself and accept that I've been invited in and appreciate that and be grateful for it. Yeah. Um, and not focus too much on yeah on what that means. But it's been really interesting. I think a lot of people don't think about that. Mm-hmm. So I just thought I'd mention it because it's a weird place to be in. No, I believe <laughs> I believe it. And like you're most definitely an ally. Like, absolutely. absolutely an ally. And it is difficult because I am LDS. I don't agree with a lot right. of things, right. <laughs> obviously, because I'm doing an yeah. LGBTQ season. So <laughs> it's, and so I like, I'm even in a different spot, but it's difficult to be in a middle spot like that mm-hmm. because, like, I am LDS, but I also very much am an LGBTQ ally. Uh-huh. And it's difficult to find that middle ground absolutely because i i don't see anything wrong with it i don't know how it's going to work into the plan that the lord has set forth as far as we know it i don't mm-hmm. know how that all works but i also believe that all of god's children are god's children mm-hmm. and he loves everyone mm-hmm. and we're all going to have the chance to live with him mm-hmm. and so i like i don't know how to connect those different things. I just go on my personal belief that God loves everyone and everyone is going to have the same opportunities in the next life. Mm -hmm. I I do believe that. And so, again, it's not even the same as you, but I I understand having that middle ground where it's like, I really know. Right. It's this (laughs) feeling of like not really belonging, right? This feeling of I don't have a community. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have, I don't even, because there aren't even that many kids like me, you know, and and my parents aren't really friends with any of those people anymore. And we're all growing up and moving away. And so I don't have even that community. And it was small anyway. Right. (laughs) Um, And, and then I don't have the LGBTQ community completely, you know, and I don't have the LDS community either. And I have my friends and I have my support and I have my family, but it's just interesting because especially in a state where we're so focused on community, mm-hmm. to not feel like I have that is really hard, Yeah, I think. So I'm just trying to build yeah, my own. But That is really hard because, again, especially in Utah, being raised by gay parents, not common. Right. No. Not common. No, it's not. <laughs> like, really not common. I was I, the educator often yeah. <laughs> for people. <laughs> They're like, what is that like? I'm like, it's it's, it's, it's normal. Imagine yeah. that. <laughs> it's, it's not weird. It's not different. <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. But I can imagine that that would be a really difficult community to find people in. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know how far this is going to reach. But, hey, if you have that, say, if you've been raised in a similar situation, like, comment. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Definitely look like I could have a Facebook page and everything. So just... I don't know. 
contact Devin. <laughs> I think she would love to chat right, with you. <laughs> right. If you set up an email or something, email us and Yes. Oh, I'm totally going to. <laughs> right. And then and then let me know and we can hook up. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that would be so hard. Yeah. That's just I hadn't really thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Like it's a unique situation that's not common here, especially. Mm-hmm. And it is, I know, I'm sure it is elsewhere. And it's becoming more common. Oh, yeah, it is becoming. Right, but especially among my generation. Yeah. Like, it's not very common. No, it's going to be more common in, like, 10 years. I agree. And I think, <laughs> and because you've seen people who, like, if who are if they're gay or, or LGBTQ anywhere on there and they have kids, it's usually because they had kids in a straight relationship or mm-hmm. a heterosexual relationship. And then got divorced and lived their truth, right? Yeah. But nowadays, they're able to actually form families Mm -hmm. and live their truth the whole time, right? So it's a really interesting generational shift Yeah. um, that not many people Mm -hmm. relate to because I don't relate to that necessarily either, you know? (laughs) So I don't relate to either because I didn't grow up in a time where that was normal. Yeah. Because a lot of my friends were from heterosexual mm-hmm. marriages. You know, I was like the only one I knew that was from in vitro fertilization where yeah. both my moms were together and wanted me, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So really, yeah. now that's more common, mm-hmm. but they're younger than me. So. Yeah. <laughs> but now you can pass your wisdom. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. And that's my goal. That's kind of why I got into social work is I can't tell you how many times LGBTQ people have come to me and been like, how did your parents do it? What did they do? What did they try? How did they start a family? Um, how do people react? So like I said, I've been an educator a lot, right? And so that's kind of what I want to do as a social worker one day is really be that person for them, be that resource where I can be like, well, let's figure out what you want to do or let's teach you what it's going to be like to be parents or mm-hmm. especially for the gay community or the LGBTQ community. Like, is that going to look different? Probably not. But like you're going to be treated different. The way to conceive is going to be different. Fertility problems are going to be unique to you. You know, mm-hmm. like all this stuff that is not out there really nowadays. Yeah. I really want to be that resource, especially in Utah, because mm-hmm. it's such a family-centered state. So even LGBTQ people want families, and they don't really know how. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's changing, too, with the internet, but I'd really love, I think that would be really enriching for me to kind of give back yeah. in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm excited to see where you go with everything <laughs> that you're doing. That's awesome. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> well, we're going to close. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming on seriously i love this thank you for having me it's been really awesome to get to know you and to talk about myself yes (laughs) i know i I love it and it's just interesting hearing your perspective because i've never talked to anyone who was raised by gay parents right i've never i i don't think i've ever in my life talked to someone right and so i love this i'm like this is so cool it it wasn't different right like i know it was different but it wasn't different like (laughs) right i have a different perspective but I have a normal life. I have a typical life, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I love it. So thank you so much, Devin. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you are in any type of an abusive relationship, please get help. You deserve so much more than that. Stay tuned for a preview from next week. If you are enjoying the show, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. It really helps us as we put this podcast together and try to get it out there. Just go to patreon.com slash scars we share. If you'd like to talk more about the episode, follow scars we share on Facebook and comment on the episode post. You can find those links in the show notes at scars we slash episode 019. I started to understand that that's what my suicide scar was meant to be for me. 
that it was meant to be something to remind me of what I can overcome and to give me the strength to get through whatever I had to go through or whatever I was going through at the time. Mm -hmm. 